You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. So we're going to be in Genesis 28 today. If you've got a Bible, um, turn it on or open it up. And if not, you can follow along on the screens. But we're going to look at Jacob, uh, Jacob's story of actually leaving the promised land of Israel. And um, we, at the Basham family, we have decided for some reason that we're going to let our youngest son, Teva, plan our vacation for next summer. And so he's downloaded, <laughs> yeah, it's an adventure. We don't know where we're going to go. <clears throat> so he's downloaded the Airbnb app. And we just told him, we kind of gave him some parameters and the budget and stuff and said, all right, man, uh, plan our vacation. And so he, he finds this place for like a hundred bucks, like for the week, not, not for the night. And, and I'm like, I don't know, man, this sounds really sketchy. And so we start look, he starts showing me, we're looking through the pictures and I'm like, man, this is actually really nice. Like this is, this is a steal. Like, so sign me up, bro. And uh, he's like, yeah, it's in this place called the Philippines. And I'm like, oh, that's why, that's why it's so cheap. And, uh, and so, you know, I had a conversation about like, okay, just because we can afford it on Airbnb doesn't mean we can get there, right? Seven plane tickets would break the bank. And so, um, so he's learning about that and travel and all that stuff. And, um, but it reminded me of the travel that we're, we're looking at in Jacob's story, because Jacob's got to do some significant travel. Um, and, and what we're looking at in, in the narrative today, Jacob has to leave the promised land, do significant travel to go back to his mom's homeland in Haran. Um, it would have been a very long journey. And he ends up not just vacationing there, he ends up staying there for two decades. So he's in the land, um, or he's out of the promised land for more than 20 years. And uh, over the next several weeks, we're going to kind of continue to see chronicled how God is faithful and God is with him, even when he's not in the promised land. And so uh, the worship of God isn't contingent on place. Um, it's more about a chosen people. And so we'll see that theme come screaming through. Another thing I want you to know from the beginning of the sermon today is that most, uh, most stories of the Bible echo the bigger story of the Bible. And the grand narrative of Scripture is the story of a promised son who goes on a journey to find a bride. And, and this is what we're going to see in Jacob, um, a, a man leaving on a journey to find a wife and bring her back to a promised land. And that's really the story of Jesus, our king. Uh, the father sends the, the promised son to earth to live a perfect life, die on a cross, raised from the dead, and bring us into a promised land that we call heaven. And so uh, we're going to see that theme uh, in, this, in today's story. I have four points if you take notes and want these. Um, we're going to look at the promise of God um, in the covenant. We'll see the pleasure of the world in that villain Esau. We're going to revisit Esau as well. Uh, we'll see the grace of God in Jacob's life. He's a pretty deplorable person and scoundrel, and God blesses him anyways. And then we're going to finish by looking at the work of worship and how worship is um, a responsibility for us who have been saved. Okay, Let's start by looking at the promise of God. Let me recap briefly just to give you context. If you haven't been here, you've missed out on uh, the context of Genesis. What Genesis um, is about is about the creations of all things in chapters 1 through 11, um, early humanity and how God creates. And then in chapter 12, we're introduced to a very specific character, very important character named Abraham. And in Abraham, God makes a promise to him. If you leave this land, commands him to leave everything he knew, uh, mo move to another land and worship him alone. And in that promise that is given to Abraham, God promises that he will um, make him a great nation and changes his name to mean father of many nations and tells him that not only will he make him into a great nation with many descendants, but he will also reach all the nations of the world through that nation. 
Um, and of course, this is alluding to uh, the coming of the Messiah, the promised one, Jesus Christ, uh, through the lineage of Abraham to thereby be in, in the faith that, that all of us have in Jesus comes from this promise. And so it's an important covenant. It's passed on from Abraham to Isaac and Isaac to Jacob. And so um, in the series Saints and Villains, we've, we've kind of divided it into six subsections. And today we start section five of six as we look at Jacob's adult life. Now, last week we talked about Esau, uh, Jacob's brother, and how Jacob robbed Esau of his blessing. He tricked him. Um, he kind of squandered away the blessing that was supposed to go to Esau, and Jacob got it instead. Remember, he dressed up like Sasquatch and got the, stole the blessing. Okay? And, and let me back up a little bit into chapter 27 to give some of this context. Uh, 27.42 says, But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. So Jacob, of course, if you remember, he's big time mama's boy, one of the biggest in scripture. And Rebecca wants to take care of him and keep him safe. And so she encourages Jacob to run away from the promised land and go and live for a while with her brother. Um, so she also couldn't stand her daughters-in-law that Esau had married. And so this was an, also an opportunity for Jacob to find a wife from her family rather than from the people that lived around them. Verse 46 says, Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. <clears throat> if Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? So all of these circumstances are actually fulfilling God's perfect plan. Um, last week at church, um, I saw a t-shirt that said chaos coordinator. Um, and maybe, maybe that's you, maybe your home and your family, you feel like the chaos coordinator. But, but I thought, man, that's a, that's a fitting title for, for God in Genesis. In the book of Genesis, it's, it's like every page is like Jerry Springer and Mari Povich show. And, and you see God working in the circumstances of all of these people's lives. You see God at work and his sovereign plan coming to pass in spite of all the sinful madness that the people step into. And so God is the ultimate chaos coordinator throughout Genesis. And in your life, I know that unfair things are thrown at you. I know that circumstances have come upon you that you didn't cause. Some of the things that, that make your life chaotic were caused by you. Whatever the case, you need to understand that the Lord is still the chaos coordinator of your life, that his sovereign plan is not derailed by your stupidity. Some of y'all need to say amen to that. That's good news, right? Um, that, that our mistakes or, or our mishaps do not derail God's plan. And we see this so clearly in Jacob's story. In all of his mistakes and all of his deception and all of his sin, God still works through Jacob to bring about his covenant promise. The promise of God still comes. And so let's look at his story in chapter 28. Verse 1 begins, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So he's telling his son, Go marry your cousin. Now I know that sounds very Alabama, and, um, and that, that, that sounds for us, you know, that, that commandment, do not marry outside of your family, sounds very strange and incestuous to us. But the parameter here was really not to marry outside of God's family. What we have to understand is that marrying Canaanite women, uh, they, were, they were dwelling in the land of Canaan, and marrying Canaanite women uh, was a religious transaction, that to join together uh, husband and wife, 
uh, with two different religions was to really mingle those, those gods together. Um, it was strongly condemned because it was inviting false gods into the covenant family of God. And so it may sound archaic to us, but believe it or not, the commandment still applies. Not to marry your cousins, but to marry within the family of God, your spiritual cousins, if you will. Don't call it that. Um, but, but for the sake of illustration... I uh, wanted to use that. 2 Corinthians 6.14 tells us, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now make no mistake, we can and should have evangelistic and missional relationships, and lots of them, but we should not have partnership with them, and this certainly includes marriage. And so if, if, if you're married and you found yourself in a, in a married relationship where uh, you're a believing spouse and your, your spouse is not a believer, the Bible has clear instructions in 1 Corinthians 7 that you're not to leave your spouse because of that. Um, but if you're single and you're looking for a spouse, the Bible is very clear that you marry in the Lord. You marry in the family of God. Um, so spiritually speaking, we do not join our, our spiritual lives with another spiritual life that is contrary to God's will. And so marriage in Genesis is a big deal. <clears throat> As Jacob leaves here to find a bride, it's a, it's a good picture of what we are to do as God's children. We are to stay within the family of God, honor the family of God, be within his church. And, and when, when men in Genesis go outside of the marriage God had uh, given to them, <clears throat> it's always for them searching for fulfillment, either to try to fulfill God's plan on their own or to find their own pleasure. You see it in Abraham and Hagar as they uh, get together because they, they want to have children and Sarah's unable to have children and so he marries Hagar instead. We're going to see it in the coming chapters with Jacob and his polygamy. He marries multiple wives. He marries two sisters, but also their servants um, outside of God's will, but still um, in his sovereignty. And then we're going to see it with Esau. He marries multiple Canaanite wives um, who make apparently really annoy Rebecca. Now, what, what we can learn from this is that we will not find our purpose or fulfillment in any earthly relationship. And if, and if you are living your life in a way that you're finding your identity, your purpose, or your, your whole fulfillment in an earthly relationship, you're going to fall massively short of what God has created you to be. God has created and designed you to be a worshiper, it, it's in your blood. It's in your DNA. It's who God has made you to be. The Imago Dei, the image of God, is that you would be a worshiper. And sometimes we, just because we're made that way, we tend to substitute what we worship. And instead of worshiping God, we begin to worship the perfect romantic relationship with our spouse or our boyfriend or girlfriend. Or we substitute uh, worship of God with worship and idolization of our children, making sure they have the perfect life and everything that we wanted that didn't have. Or we make sure we have uh, the perfect hobbies or the perfect pastimes, and we begin to worship those things. And much of the Bible is teaching us to kill those idols and worship the one true God. Those things are all good things, but they're not objects of your worship. The promise of God here had fallen upon Jacob, and now he needed to walk in it. And he wasn't going to find fulfillment in the, the perfect wife out there in a faraway land. He would only find fulfillment in walking in the plan of God and the promise that God had given him by grace. Isaac speaks to him, and he blesses him again in verse 3. He says, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. You see, the promise is repeated of, of giving the land to Jacob's family. 
and giving many descendants. Multiplication is, is promised. Now, spoiler alert, Jacob will not walk perfectly in God's will, not even close, actually. He'll continue in his sin and screw-ups and deception. Uh, but, but what better example of, of an object of God's grace? We will see the grace of God and, find, and, and Jacob will find his peace in the promise of God. And so in way of application, I want to ask you today, do you know what God's promises are to you? Well, we have the promise of the gospel. We have the covenant of the gospel that Jesus has lived the perfect life that you could never live. In a million lifetimes, you could never live the perfect life that Jesus did. And he lived it to become your substitute. And upon the cross, Jesus was treated how you should be treated by God. The Father poured out wrath on the only undeserving man, Jesus Christ, so that you could be treated as righteous, though you're not inherently righteous. And that promise of the gospel, when applied to your life, do you walk in that in every area of your life, or is it just a church thing for you? Because how you respond to God really should affect every relationship you have, every day of your life. And, and when you walk in the promise of God, guess what? A byproduct of that is happiness and joy and pleasure. You see, you will find pleasure in the promise of God, but hear me very clearly, you won't find promise in the pleasure of the world. You will not find God's promises in chasing after things of the world. You will not find fulfillment. You will find pleasure, but you will not find God's covenant promise of the gospel. Esau is a good example of this. Let's look at the pleasure of the world and how that played out in Esau's life. Esau uh, will do the opposite of his father's will. He seeks the pleasure of the world just so he could spite his parents. You know, um, we understand what Isaac's doing here, right? He's making sure his son marries in the family of God. It's like if I were to move to California, I'm not sure what would cause me to do that, but if I were, um, I would want my sons to find good Appalachian women to marry, right? Because that's the way God wants us to be. And I've heard the Katy Perry song about California girls. I know how dangerous they could be. So I would say, sons, go to that faraway land in Appalachia, get you an Appalachian girl, and then you can come back home to California, right? And that's what Isaac basically tells Jacob. Now Esau hears Jacob, uh, hears what Isaac tells to Jacob, and Esau says, I'm going to do the exact opposite of my father's will, just, just because I'm an evil, horrible person. And so verse 6 says, Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, uh, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Now, Esau is an example of the epitome of chasing the world instead of chasing the Lord. That, that he had Canaanite wives, and he also went after Ishmael's family so that, so that he could continue to marry outside of the promise. And, and God did not force his hand, but God had decreed it. And Jacob uh, would follow in the Lord's will by grace, not by his own merit, but God had decreed that Jacob, in Jacob would come the promise and would come a chosen nation that we call Israel. Here, what happens with Esau's marriage is with his Canaanite wives and also marrying with uh, Ishmaelite women would come Edomites, Ishmaelites, uh, nations that give rise to other nations and mingle so much so that you cannot even distinguish the nations anymore. It actually becomes a really good picture of what the Bible calls the Gentiles, multiple nations, basically any nation outside of the chosen nation of Israel. 
And so God has a chosen nation, Israel, but remember their purpose was to draw people from all nations. Anytime we talk about Israel being the chosen nation, it's important for us to remember that God didn't exclusively love Israel. He didn't only love Israel. He chose Israel to reach all nations, a chosen nation to reach nations. And so there are rebellious people represented in the Gentiles, but God will use Israel to draw them to his eternal nation, the kingdom of Christ. Now, spoiler alert, Jacob and Esau in chapter 33 actually kiss and make up, literally. Um, verse 33, or chapter 33, verse 4 says, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. So, so the reconciliation of these brothers, Jacob and Esau, foreshadows the redemption of the nations, that, that Israel would go into the nations and most of us ethnically are, are Gentiles, that we would be grafted in, adopted into the family of God, even though we may not have been born into a promise. But Esau would personally not repent to the point of entering into the covenant of God. And the tale of these two sons stands in a, as an example to us today of which path we will follow. In one son, Jacob, we see a type of Christ. A good father sends a son of promise on a journey to find a bride. Jesus is sent on a journey to redeem the church called the bride in Scripture. We're joined to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, so that we can be with him forever. In another son, Esau, we see a type of ourselves, rebellious sons and daughters who ignore their father's wishes and chase after worldly pleasure instead. You see, every day we live, we're faced with this choice. We're going to chase our own vices and pleasures and Habits, or are we going to chase after what God has planned for us? And I would call you to not be like Esau, except in his reconciliation to Jacob. Be like him only in his reconciliation, not in his rebellion. Run to the son of promise. Embrace him. Fall on his neck. Kiss him. Weep with joy for finding the son of promise, Jesus Christ. And you'll experience the grace of God. Point three is the grace of God. What I love about Jacob is he is he's truly the perfect example that, that God's blessing and God's salvation is only by grace. Because if, there's, if there were ever a character in the Bible who didn't deserve to be chosen and to be blessed, it's Jacob. Like he's a scoundrel. He is just the absolute worst. And he's obedient to his parents here, but that's about it. That's like the first good thing he's done. <laughs> and, and he sets out on a journey here, a journey that will keep him outside of the promised land for the next 20 years plus years. And as he sets out on this journey, he is given a, a sign of the extreme grace of God that is poured out upon him. And what this, what this vision he's going to receive, a dream that he has, is going to reveal to him that all of it's by grace. And he's going to, for the first time, actually be spurred on by God's initiation, not his own, to follow in the covenant. You see, you also, Christian, are chosen by God to be a worshiper and a missionary. And it doesn't really matter if you want to or not. Once you understand how good God is and how glorious and big he is, there is no other option for us. What else could we do but serve and worship him? And this is where Jacob finds himself. When God reveals himself to Jacob, he finds himself at a place. What other choice does he have other than to be, become a worshiper of God? Imperfect? Yes. Faithful? Not so much. But does he become a worshiper? Absolutely he does because he sees God. Let's read this account in chapter 28. Starting at verse 10, it says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. 
Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Where Jacob physically is when he goes to sleep and has this dream is really close to the geographical center of the land of Israel. And the Lord reveals himself and reiterates again the same covenant promise that we saw since chapter 12. The land will be given to you, all this land, north, south, east, and west, and you will have many descendants of which all the families of the earth will be blessed. Everyone on earth is going to be blessed because of you. And the dream really kind of centers around this image of a ladder to heaven. Um, in Hebrew, you could also translate it to stairway, a stairway to heaven. Led Zeppelin wrote a song about that, I think. I've never made it through the whole song, but I know it exists. Okay? Um, and, and on this ladder, there are angels going up and down the ladder or the stairwell, and God is at the top of it. And you know, from earth to heaven is, is of course, a great height. You know, I, I didn't think I was afraid of heights until I got on a scissor lift with Jeremy Berry over at the new building. And it's got really high ceilings. We're like 25 feet up in the air, and Jeremy starts rocking the thing back and forth. I'm about to throw him off of it. And, and I realized then, you know, I, New Heights was maybe not the best name for the church because I realized I don't like heights that much. Um, but, but previously in Genesis, man had tried to reach a new height. They, they literally tried to reach heaven. Remember in Genesis chapter 11, they built a tower, the Tower of Babel. They built it to try to reach heaven. And many people have tried to interpret what's going on in, in Jacob's dream. There's lots of opinions on what Jacob's ladder means, and I'm going to give you my opinion um, because I have a microphone. And so you can take it or leave it, but here's what I think the Lord is showing Jacob and thereby showing us, is that there are, there are really two views that exist of salvation, and both of them can be kind of visualized or symbolized by this ladder. In one view of salvation... I could look at Jacob's ladder. I could look at a ladder to heaven and a ladder to God himself and say, I'm going to climb higher and higher and higher. That my whole life, I'm going to take one rung after the other and I'm going to do one good deed after another, random acts of kindness, and eventually I'll get good enough to enter heaven. Now, let me just tell you, that's not the picture of the gospel. That's a very popular view of salvation, though. Christian fundamentalism and legalism subscribes to this view that, that uh, our ladies get skirts a little longer and our, our men button their collars up a little tighter and, and we stop cussing so much and, and we start to hide our sin rather than confess it and, and we get holier and holier until eventually we get to the holy of holies. Let me tell you that every world religion subscribes to this view of salvation as well. In Islam, it's, it's all the acts of, of good that I need to do to gain approval of Allah. In other Eastern religions, it's how much good I can do so I can gain the favor of karma in the world or be reincarnated in a positive state or achieve nirvana. Every 
world religion is based on this ideology that we are climbing, not a corporate ladder, but a religious one with our lives. The gospel is completely different, and it's the only message that is different. And the message is, you are an insufficient climber, but the ladder works both ways. And so you can't climb to God, but God has come to you. That God is not waiting for you to come up, but instead that God has come down. You see, Jacob's ladder wasn't about Jacob getting to heaven, it was about heaven getting to Jacob. And when you change your view of, of getting to heaven to that, that you're, you're accepted by God who has come down to you to rescue you, then your whole mindset of life changes and all the pressure is lifted off of you because Jesus is your hope, not your own ability. Jesus, who is a descendant of Jacob, descended this ladder in the incarnation to be born in a manger, to live a perfect life, to be your substitute on a cross so that you can get to heaven. You see, Jesus is both a descendant of man and a descender to save man. This is why we worship him. Because he is the God-man, full of grace and truth, and he is our Savior. Ephesians 4.9 says about him, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. God came to earth to save us. That's what the latter means. It's good news. God has always been an incarnational God. It means whatever you're going through, he's with you. Wherever you find yourself, he's there with you. Look at verse 15 in Genesis 28. What he promises after this vision, what he promises to Jacob. Jacob's getting ready to, he's on his way out of town, right? Look at what God says. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That even though Jacob may go away from the promised land, and even though Jacob may go away from God's will and sin, God promises he will not leave him, and that he will be present with him wherever he goes. That same promise is applied to us, that when we wander away, we sing the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. That when we wander away into sin, when, we, when church becomes a, 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 you know, a, a lower priority thing, and we get lazy in our practice of our faith, God's still with us, beckoning back to the promised land. Jacob eventually names the place Bethel. And Bethel means the house of God. And I grew up in a church where, where they called the building the house of God. Um, I don't mean any offense, but if you ever start calling this building or the one we're moving to the house of God, I'm just going to be like, eh, I don't know if that's right. Uh, I don't think he lives here. Um, I wouldn't want to live here. Um, but what I love about when, when Jacob uses the word house, we lose a little bit of it in English translated from Hebrew. It's one of my favorite Hebrew words. It's bayith because it sounds like when you stink in Lincoln County, you got to take a bayith. I love this word. Um, <laughs> It's the same word that Joshua used when he says, it's for me and my house, we will serve the Lord as me and my bayith. Bayith, two syllables. Bayith means family or descendants forever. And we see the word house and we think structure. We think building. But when the Lord would proclaim bayith, he said, it's, it's his family. It's descendants forever. You see, the house of the Lord isn't a place, it's a people. He is with us. And even when we wander away, he's still with us. He's bringing us back to where we ought to be. 
But the coming back takes intentionality and work and worship. And so the final point in today's passage is the work of worship. I want to look at Jacob's response and apply it to your heart before we go home today. At the end of this passage, we see a response from Jacob. In verse 16, it says, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. Then he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. His words remind me of stranger things. Remember, they open the gates and all this happens. And, and, and so he views this with like a very mystic view. And, and probably is overly geocentric in his response to God's dream that is given to him. He calls it the house of God, the gate of heaven. And we see throughout Israel's history that they're very focused on uh, geographic places and centers. They set up memorial stones, altars, and things like that. And there's nothing wrong with those things. But a lot of times I think the characters in Scripture totally miss what God is communicating. God's, God's climactic proclamation to Jacob is, even when you're gone, I'm with you. And so he builds this place. He's so moved by his experience that, he, that he, his faith is spurred forward. And I want you to see, you don't have to work to attain salvation, but salvation should motivate gospel work. Let me me define worship for you. It's not the songs you sing on Sunday. It's not going to church. Worship is a right response to who God truly is. That's what worship is. A right response to who God truly is. And so Jacob, in in all of his imperfections, at this moment he becomes a worshiper of God. And he does a few things in verses 18 through 22 as we finish the passage. Verse 18 says, So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I will come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. And what Jacob does is he takes the pillow. He had a rock for a pillow, but he, it's probably a pretty decent-sized rock. And, and what he does is he doesn't just stand it up, but presumably even dug a footer to, to make sure that it stood for however long he was going to be out of that land. And he stands up this rock that he slept on as a marker for where God appeared to him, again, which is the center of the land that was promised. And he has a few reactions. I want to highlight three things that I think are deeply applicable um, to how we respond to God saving us. Number one, he gave. He gave. This is the second instance of a tithe in Scripture. Now, tithe is an old English word that means tenth or ten percent. It's a good benchmark for us, I think, to give. This is not a repeated commandment in the New Testament, so I don't think we can be legalistic with it, but I think what is clear is that we're supposed to give of our wealth to the mission of the church because God has given us all of our wealth. Um, In 1 Corinthians 16, 2, Paul wrote to that church on the first day of every week, that's Sunday, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Uh, In the Greek language, the phrase, as he may prosper, was used to describe percentages. And so what I think this is indicating is that we sacrificially and regularly give to the mission of God. Spend money so that the Lord's mission can advance. And, And it's not flippant. It's not just, well, whatever I have left in my pocket from the week. It is a part of our budget that we sacrifice because we acknowledge all the wealth came from him. 
And so Jacob makes a covenant when he promises to the Lord. Notice he doesn't say, I'm just going to come back and have church services. He says, I'm going to give a full tenth to you. He acknowledges that, that all, the, all the clothing, all the food, all the livestock, the family, everything that he's going to gain when he leaves the land, when he comes back, he's going he's to not forget that God had blessed him through it all. And so he's going to be sacrificial and he's going to give. Secondly, he built. He built. He built a, a pillar, which is a pretty simple structure, stand it up and dig out and make sure it stays, you know, stands the test of time. But, but he took effort to actually build. You know, he, he slept on that rock, which sounds like horrible sleep. Um, I have a pillow that my mom bought for me. I'm ashamed of how much it cost, but she loves me. She's like Rebecca. I'm like a mama's boy. She bought me this really nice pillow. And when I was in the hospital um, at the end of June, my wife said, what do you need you know, from the house? And I was like, I don't need anything except my pillow. If you could bring my pillow, that would be great. So she brought me my pillow. And, um, and that just made the hospital stay that much better. But when I left, I was so excited to get in the car with my good work friend, Jeremy, when they discharged me. And, uh, you know, I got, I just got excited and I left my pillow in the hospital. And I was like, like, I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. Thankfully, Emily Lanham had surgery the same day. And so, um, I was like, Hey, can y'all run across the hall to my room and get my pillow and bring it back to me? You know, cause Jeremy's got, he's busy. He's got places to be and people to see. And so the next Sunday I came to worship the Lord and there she comes with the pillow. And this is a spiritual experience to get my pillow back. <laughs> and I think of Jacob sleeping on this rock and I'm like, ah, that, that had to be horrible. But what he does here, I think is, is very interesting. He sets his pillow up and it becomes a pillar. Now I know for some of y'all that's the same word, pillow and pillar, but I, you need to know I'm saying two different things. All right. Just lay down and sleep on my pillar. Um, his pillow becomes a pillar. You see, God has given you rest and peace to your soul through salvation. A spiritual pillow, if you will. But worship is when you do the hard work of standing it up to become a pillar. And I'm afraid some of you have accepted the free gift of salvation, the pillow, and you're just spiritually sleeping your way to heaven. You're not doing the work of standing up your testimony so that people can know the truth of the gospel. You've been a Christian for some time, but you've never invited anyone to join God's family with you. You've never served in the local church. You've never sacrificed so that, so that more and more people can hear this good news that was freely given to you. The work of worship sometimes means that we stop resting and we take that rest and we turn it into a beautiful testament of who gave us the rest. The third thing he did was he committed. He made a vow and he made a covenant. That even, even through the circumstances that were taking Jacob away, he made a promise to God that he was going to be a worshiper of God. That even as he left the promised land, he made a promise to return. I think some of us who love the doctrines of grace are, are so quick to talk, uh, everything's initiated by God because it is. All of our salvation is God's work because it is. But we forget that the response to that is for us to actually make a real commitment to, to Christ. A commitment, a vow to, to serve him with all of our days. And Jacob makes this promise, and he doesn't keep it perfectly, far from it. But his heart is given over to the Lord, that he will be a worshiper for the rest of his days. 
Some of you maybe need to make that covenant as well. Make that promise. Lord, I want to commit my life to you. Let's finish by looking at Genesis 35. Flip a few pages with me. In Genesis 35, verses 6 and 7, what happens is Jacob returns to the exact same place where the Lord appeared to him in this dream. Verse 6 says, Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him. And I need you to pause there and understand. He, he brings back, when he, when he returns to the place that the Lord appeared to him, he brings back with him all of the wealth that God had graciously given him. Wives, children, money, livestock, possessions, that God's just richly, richly blessed him. And he comes back to this place where it all began. This place where he slept with a rock for a pillow, and he finds the pillar that he had stood up. And verse 7 says, And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, which means God of Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. You see, when he left, he set up a pillar, which was a marker. But when he returned, he set up an altar, which was a place of regular worship. Setting up an altar meant that they were going to come back there and offer sacrifices and worship the Lord and sing to him and bow down and pray to him. That, that worship was actually going to happen there. In essence, he built a church. And I think what's, what's telling about this whole thing is, is I don't want any of you to fall prey to the fact that you can just skip from the pillow to the altar and miss that pillar part in the middle. That, that you would accept your salvation and glorify God and be thankful for that, but then all of your effort to reach others with that gospel would just be rested in the institution of the church and never on you personally. God's plan for the lost people in your life is you. How they will be saved is you. The person who will communicate hope to them is you. Not the preacher, not the church, it's you. You are the church. You're the hope of, of, of God that's, that he's bringing into the lives of people who desperately need to hear the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which brings hope to the vilest of sinner. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.